tossed that rusty old grill into the lake and set the bark lounger on fire. This is the dadward spiral. Oh my goodness. <laughs> look, look, I first want to just start this by, by apologizing because last week I drank way too much oh. and came barreling into the episode just like full bull in a china shop bravado laughing uncomfortably over all the uncomfortable topics we discussed because <laughs> I was really nervous to talk about certain things and uncomfortable. And I was just like, I'm just going to drink this whiskey that I got sent by the History Channel. And I'm also going to brag about being sent whiskey from the History Channel. <laughs> Doop-a-doo. You were well um, within your rights to brag about history whiskey. Sure. But um, <laughs> I did a previous show for seven years called Punch Drunk TV. And it started as a show called Pass the F and Remote at Geek Nation. And the whole thing was my co-host and I would drink a lot of alcohol while recording. And that habit sort of, I was like, well, I, that's just how I have to record podcasts. So I'm not doing that now. Oh, hi, by the way. My name is Aaron Pruner. I should have. Yeah. Um, uh, if you've gotten this far into the episode, thanks. Um, yeah. And I'm Eddie Doty. Uh, welcome to the uh, to the downward spiral. Uh, yeah. To be to be fair, your drinking habits came aboard at Geek Nation. You were well within your rights to get drunk recording thank, there. So thank, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank as you a, as another Geek Nation alumni. Uh, yes. So. And it's been a it's been a rough it's been a rough few weeks. Uh, we are recording this the week before Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. uh, my mother had a meltdown today. My mother-in-law had a meltdown today. It's like families are having a hard time right now with a, we have a possible pending stay-at-home order happening again in LA and weird-ass curfew that's starting on Saturday night. And so it, it, there's a lot of things that are happening that make drinking sound so much fun or just necessary. 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 Oh, <laughs> spoiler well, alert. Anyway, oh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, this is the Dadward Spiral. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Dadward Spiral. I don't do a great job of updating either one, but go there anyways. And uh, we're also on Dragon Wagon Radio's website. And if you want a picture of me and my daughter, kind of, they're silhouettes, like shadowy artwork, uh, go to the Dragon Wagon Radio website and under the shop tab, we have some merchandise, including some lovely COVID-19 masks for your face to wear if you want. <laughs> I don't know if you'd want a picture of me falling in a silhouette of my daughter on your face, but it's the logo and they're pretty cool. What if I already have a picture of you and your daughter on a mask somewhere, but not associated with the show? What if I just like have one and I made one on Etsy or something? Should I still buy a dadward spiral mask? I'll take that as a no. Uh, <laughs> anyway. I expect some royalties. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. That's totally fair. Uh, um, that's totally fair. So, so yeah. So, we are, this is episode number five. And uh, everyone. Can you tell? People who are listening to this will be listening to this on Thanksgiving Day. If oh, they sure, listen right. the day it drops, which I, I, you're, you're welcome. Um how how's it going, Eddie? It's going all right. It's um it it's been you know again, it's one of those things where, uh, because of thanks to 
American capitalism. Um, all you know, next week is like a half week, and my job is very good. There's no meetings on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday are off. Uh, many people are going to check out on Wednesday, and that's all amazing and well intentioned and good. What that means is I have to cram a bunch of stuff that I have to get done before then I've got to like, I've got to set things into motion so that when the holiday actually comes, I can actually step away and not, you know, be paranoid that things are, and and it's fine. Like none of our, none of the people I work with are broadcasting that day. So it's, it's, it's going to be fine. It's just in order for me to have peace of mind, I've got to like sprint to make sure that everything is like solved and taken care of beforehand um so and that's generally i think that's been every thanksgiving for the last adult life of mine um you know like i think it's just it and i and that's the other thing i love thanksgiving for all the problematic nonsense of it i love cooking i love making big meals i do like yeah we normally have a open door policy uh last year we had 33 people in my house for thanksgiving um yeah just other families like my friend nina raul and their kids and my mom and you know some some siblings and lots of orphans we have like an orphan friendly thanksgiving not this year uh not like we're trying to do something maybe with my sister-in-law because they've recently been tested and i've been tested but that's looking less and less like a great idea uh so we're just i don't know i'm i'm gonna go buy a turkey tomorrow i don't know like what size do i get because i guarantee you my kids ain't gonna eat turkey uh they never do so yeah that's that's why i'm at I think I got a five or six pounder. It's in the freezer right now. And the only people in my house who are going to eat the turkey are myself and my mom. So it should be interesting. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, look, be thankful you have a job. Oh, totally. Because I guess Absolutely. the grass can be always greener if you're on my side of the fence. But, you know, it's, it's, I didn't mean that to come out the way it's out. <laughs> well, well, I feel like <laughs> shit. <laughs> and jewish um i i look man i i didn't mean it to come off that it's, way i know i know you didn't mean it though it's because good. i i remember what it was like to work like 60 yeah. hours a week and have to work on dude i worked on christmas day while i was at my in-laws house and i think prince did prince die on christmas or not prince um Someone mm. died on Christmas, and then I had to, like, ru- some big famous person died on Michael, George Michael. George Michael yeah, died that's on right. Christmas, and yeah. I had to write an obituary, and then I had to put together a script uh, for a social video that Zap Tuit was going to put out about all of George Michael's best TV roles. Huh. Not good taste, in my opinion, but that was how I spent the majority of my Christmas day. So I get it. But, you know, I complained about it then. The flip side of it is now I don't know where my money's coming from each week. So it's been kind of an adventure. But I mean, look, you're, you're up, you're down. That's how it works. In yeah. This, in this and, town. and we're not mm-hmm. here to talk about my needs. If you want, I will post <laughs> my Venmo for you to send me money. Not you, Eddie, just anyone listening. Um, sure. We have... A guest, <laughs> Jesus Christ, 30 minutes in. We have a guest this week who um, I mentioned before we started recording kind of had an influence on me continuing in the realm of entertainment journalism. Um, back, so I started this as a hobby in 2010. I was a horror movie blogger for a website called Icons of Fright. 
Mm, I remember that place. And mm-hmm. then I started writing for places like uh, Fearnet and Bloody Disgusting and Dread Central. And in 2011, I went to a screening of a movie called Attack the Block. And a man by the name of Drew McQueenie introduced the movie. And he came out and introduced a screening. And I was like, that's so fucking cool. I want to do what that guy does. And at that moment, I was like, I got to, I mean, I got to stop looking at this as a hobby and start actually looking at this as something I can maybe do to make some real money and and, and as a career. And uh, then soon after that, I landed at Geek Nation and started a podcast and um, started actually like writing about television and my stuff went from being a blogger to a quote unquote journalist. You know, I I'm in multiple unions and I've written for like the Hollywood reporter and IGN and all these places, but it's kind of funny because we're almost 10 years since I started doing this. And that man has joined us today. Welcome to the show, Drew. Thank you. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me. Was that uh, South by Southwest? No, that was at the arc light in Sherman Oaks. Okay. Or? Yeah, that was okay. all right. Wow. Yeah. Great. great screening. Great, uh, great film. And, uh, I did not know that. Very cool, yeah. man. Yeah, it's it's funny. I I think about that more than I think I should <laughs> that night because that was actually the first time I had ever gone to a screening when it was introduced by someone doing what I wanted to do. It was like, wow. And I recognized your name because, you know, from Hit Fix and stuff. But I was like, oh, wow, that's 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 Drew McQueenie. Like it was like <laughs> it, it it was pretty cool. And uh, then, of course, later on, I used to I, I wrote for Uproxx for like two years and I left Uproxx to be an associate editor at a website called uh, Zap to it, which no longer exists. And then HitFix went was- the realm, went the way a lot of websites have gone and got swallowed up by Uproxx. So I was like, dudes at Uproxx yep. now. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that was just a very temporary, they, they were not buying me when they bought no. that website mm. and it became very clear very quickly that they had no interest in the actual writers there, which made no sense to me. I still don't understand that because the website name isn't anything. It's just the writers that make a website what it is. So it was very right. confusing to me. It was, it was a murderer's row of talent there too. Like from the time you came aboard in 2008 up until, um, up until you know the end there, like with you and Roth and 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 uh, Alan and and everybody else, like it was just a, it was a really good. It almost had like, dare I say, like the Zephyr team uh, wait, wait, of, was, of writers. Was, when you say Alan, you mean Seppenwall? Yeah, I didn't know he was there. Yeah, he was one yeah. of the OGs there. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah I, that's what I'm saying. It's like it had that Dogtown Z Boys vibe to it of of just these amazing writers who all had different specialties, different interests, different exp- lived in experiences that they brought to their writing. And that was, that was the plan at the beginning. That's, that was the whole editorial idea was, you know, pick somebody who's very good in their lane, put them in their lane and then let them go. And for a little while it worked. Like I, I think, um, I think we ended up doing the thing that a lot of publishing did and uh, followed Facebook's advice and followed outside advice about ad buys and ad money and there and, and the industry live was driven videos. insane. But yeah, the industry was driven insane by the outside influences and yeah, the the pivot to video and all that shit. It it, it was a real shame because I think the idea itself was a great idea and when it worked, it worked so well. I think. Mm-hmm. There's still a, an idea that would work like that, which is just hire good writers and then turn them loose to really write. And I think a lot of that is don't ask them to do news. 
Yeah, yeah. and and I mean, we'll get into it, this a bit later, but I've noticed it's it's sort of sad when I look down the roster of places I've worked and half the websites I've worked at don't exist anymore, and my yeah. bylines are completely gone from, from the planet. Because we were always told that the internet was permanent, and it's far it's from not. permanent. There's it's it's very much written in sand. So that it, the moment a website vanishes, unless it is bought by even Hitfix, which was bought by Uprox. What they've done with the archives is horrifying. It's half of it doesn't work, half of it's not online, half of it you can't find. It's really bizarre to me. And yeah, I, again, I visited uh, Uprox. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, did I interrupt you? No, no. It, it just it seems odd to buy a website and then not keep all of the things right. that were written for it online where you can read them. It, I, it's it's go ahead, Darren. Go ahead. No, no. I visited there right before the pandemic started, and I I met with the lifestyle editor. Um, and I got to see some people I used to work with and uh, uh, Jared. And I learned real quickly that Uprox is not the Uprox I used to work for. They're now a music, they're a music website. They're owned yeah. by Warner Media, Warner uh, Music Group. And so like their main goal is to create content around the Warner Music <laughs> Library with with ancillary verticals that still speak to like TV and movie news and stuff, but that's not what their focus is on. Well, you know, certainly the boneyard of, of media is, is something that we've all experienced in various capacities. I'm not a, I'm not an entertainment writer, but I produced, I think 400 hours of live content. Oh, legendary. Did you? Um, well, no, but like I Was did it that. on critical role. Some of it. I mean, that was a good chunk of it. Well, critical role is okay, but everything else uh, that was for a proprietary uh, SVOD platform is just gone. It's yeah. just completely gone. And like, yeah. we, I mean, to the point where we're like hitting up editors going, Hey, did you happen to back up any of that stuff? Like, and, and it's, if someone did, we have no access to it. And that's unfortunate because the reason I think we wanted to have drew here um, is, is so we complain about the, the <laughs> way the internet is. Well, no, but we, we talk about, I think, I think what drew, you know, I was drew. I, I, followed you from way in the early days at, at, at Anna cool drew and I actually met when I was working on, uh, I'll tell the story when drew yeah. was, when I was working, there was a time in 2003 where there were two reality movies about spring break being made one called the real Cancun and the other called the quest. The real Cancun was made by my alma mater, Buna Marie productions, the quest made by uh, Mike Fleiss. And I was working on the bachelor at the time. And so I got ported over into the quest. You do uh, know the girl that I'm, that I met you through, we went yes. on a date to go see both of those. She movies told me that she years. told me that story. <laughs> she told me that story. Um, no, it's funny. So yeah, so I, I was an inside tipster to drew and I, I actually dropped the tea on a lot of that stuff. The other part of that is that the bachelor's offices shared an office with the time with Warner brothers animation. So while walking to the bachelor office every day, I would pass by Joe Dante's office oh, and shit. I, I may or may not have taken a work cut of Looney Tunes back in action. And I may or may not have given that to our friend drew here. Screw it. NDAs are, uh, you know, if, if you're going to come after me now, you have what? there's like wow, way better things to come out like no news no one, yeah it was fascinating news. because i had gone to mexico for the real cancun i had yeah. gone to to the set of that and had spent like five days there which was what a third of their shoot it was ridiculous and um chaos and madness and just watching how they worked i was like this is crazy these people are crazy. yes i can't believe they're gonna get a movie out of this thing and that's gonna be in theaters in a month yep. and i got back to la 
and I met Eddie because he was the editing the other one. And he was like, oh, so you went to that set? Well, let me tell you what I know about that film and this film. Because I had interviewed and, on Cancun. And years later, man, yeah. I worked for Mike Fleiss. Oh, fun. <laughs> I, wrote I read a film, it. Yeah, I wrote a film for him and Guillermo del Toro. That's amazing. Yeah. I had one interaction with Mike Fleiss years later is at the G4EO Awards, which is like the G4 Network's like video game awards. Ran into him at a party and I'm like, hey, you may or you probably don't definitely don't remember me, but I worked on, <laughs> on the quest. And he literally, he literally like became despondent and dropped his head. And then after a second, <laughs> after a second, he raised his head and looked at me. I locked with me. He's like, you thought it was funny, right? And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> but listen, we're not here to talk about spring break movies. The, the reason I wanted to bring Drew aboard is because, in my opinion, of all the things Drew's done, one of the best things you've ever done is your uh, series of articles that I know you've compiled into several like books of under the banner of Film Nerd 2.0. And um, I'm just going to get this out of the way now because I, I just want to level set that. Um, I started reading those before I became a father, when before my first son was born. I don't think I've ever had the opportunity to tell you, uh, as you can hear my daughter in the background, I don't think I've ever had the opportunity of telling you how essential reading those articles were to me in um, learning how to dad. And I how no, like I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, by the way. yeah. I mean, I well, but like the it was a series of articles with your with your two sons with Toshi and Alan uh, about giving them their film diet and like and but beyond like the movies you showed them and like it was the conversations. Uh, I've I've talked about this before. My father and I, um, my father and I had like a weekly film club that we used to oh, do, wow. and and films were like the the one area we could connect on because significant age difference. But like his love of film, he was a working film critic for a while. Like for uh, his love of film was like what he and I were able to bond over. And like after my father passed away in two thousand five, so I never got like the opportunity to like discuss how to be a father with him. Mm. And I saw ah, fuck, I saw um I saw glimpses of that in your writing, Drew. And I think like. I can't tell you how um, how so many things you talked about with Toshi and Allen were, um, were were like would get repeated with Grayson and Riker and now Millie. So like just to get out of the way so I can fucking stop Jeez. choking up here. Yeah. Um, thank you for like literally all of that. And and part of like is if you haven't read this, you owe it to your if you're a father, if you're a mother, if you're a parent of any kind, uh, you owe it to yourself to check this out because there I think there's value, especially in this day and age, for it. Well, yeah, I thank you because I every time you said film 2.0, I had no idea what you were talking about. And now I do. It, yeah, it started. Um, It started really organically. It wasn't like anything I intended to write. But um, when Toshi was three and he started getting to the point where he was asking questions about what I was doing, and what was going on in the house, there was so much media in the house that I realized we're going to have he's going to end up exposed to this stuff. And I better make a plan for how we do it. And I, I really do think that the biggest problem we have educationally in America is that we don't have media literacy classes, kindergarten through 12th grade, where we teach people how to watch movies, how to watch television, how to read a newspaper, how to distinguish fact from fiction, how to just the basics of digesting media. And I think our biggest responsibility, one of the biggest undiscussed responsibilities of parenthood in the 21st century is our children have access to an ocean of media that we did not when we were young. Right. An ocean. And they can get it at the tap of a finger. How do you steer them through that, make them ready to digest whatever it is they encounter? And how do you introduce them to things so that they can be part of a conversation instead of just something you sit them in front of? I think films 
can open the dialogue to anything, any conversation you want to have with your kid, any conversation that you need to have with them, you can start from watching something together. How, okay, that brings up, okay, that brings up a lot of thoughts in me. And I actually wrote down some notes and ideas about this, but first and foremost, <laughs> I'm in a relationship where my wife was raised, um, in a very sheltered manner where she wasn't allowed to watch a lot of movies herself. So a lot of the stuff she grew up on were musicals and books. And so when I've had these conversations with her, you know, in the recent years about how I would like to expose my daughter to certain movies that, that shaped me, you know, that I think are important. There's a disconnect there because she didn't have those same experiences and right. and she doesn't have that no i mean over the past five years i had to show her like she'd never seen jaws i had to take yeah. her to show her jaws i had to take her to show her um uh she's seen all the indiana joneses she's seen goonies but there were there were movies where i was like are you are you kidding me i took her to the new <laughs> beverly theater to see cloak and dagger because oh. that movie was a big part of my childhood and I mean she didn't get it but it was like <laughs> having those conversations now has been interesting because you know I grew up I, like most kids in the 80s I grew up in front of the television I was uh I, I don't want to say I was a latchkey kid but there were times where I was just left at home to my own devices and it was usually watching the KTLA KTLA movie marathon on Sundays um, which is where I first saw The Shining <laughs> when oh, I was wow. like, uh, what was I? I was like nine years old. Um, well, we were very much the first generation that had access to movies that we could pick, right. not just movies that were randomly showing. And the, yeah. the fact that home video kind of hit in the 80s, just as I was coming of age as a film fan, allowed me to program what I watched, which was a, a real luxury that my parents never had. And I think for my parents, they didn't even know how to approach that. They didn't even, there was no rhyme or reason. My dad opened one of the very first video stores in Tennessee back in like oh. 82 or three. I didn't know that. So, and we would just get boxes of videos delivered to the house. We processed, they'd wow. be opened. They had to have a tab put on them and nobody would be home in the afternoons. And I would watch everything. <laughs> I just, whatever it was. And there were there were definitely times that I uh, thought I was going to get away with something, and it turned out to be not at all what I expected. Like I remember, I opened uh, an unmarried woman, and I'm like, "Oh man, look at that! Look at that title, and it's rated R. This is going to be awesome. This is going to be hot. <laughs> it is not hot." Um, and I will tell you, as a 10, an 11 year old boy, you're not married. You're not ready for like a feminist manifesto, like an unmarried woman. <laughs> no. Um, so nobody uh, nobody <laughs> steered me, and that was that was right. a real a lot of my film education was very haphazard and very weird and at inappropriate moments. I saw The Exorcist at seven because of a Dude, babysitter. I was six because my cousin was babysitting me. Dude, we were Catholic. I thought it was a fucking documentary. I didn't <laughs> know it was a movie. It broke me when I yeah. saw it, and uh, like, I Eddie, wasn't look, ready for horror films for years because of that experience. Eddie, if you look at the docu the document I put together, I have on here. When do you think it's too it. young to introduce a horror movie to a kid? Yeah, I saw The Exorcist when I was six. <laughs> like, I, I, yeah. I have, I have, a, I have a story about that because, like, well, firstly, one, um, I at seven years old uh, convinced my parents to rent Kiss of the Spider Woman, thinking oh, it was wow. like a Spider Man movie. <laughs> oh, um, it, it, it was not. Uh, to be 100 clear, 
So um, when Raul and Julia had, shows up, did, they had questions about why you wanted to rent that after you guys watched it. Cause the, to be fair, the VHS cover looks awesome. It's like in silhouette, you get yeah. the like crystalline spider web. I'm like, sweet. This is like clearly a superhero movie. Um, but uh, you know, it's so funny. You're saying this and you're talking about this. Like my dad's, my dad's had this thing and I used to be on this podcast called uh, friends in your head. And I've told this story before, but I think it's relevant here is my dad's approach to it was, um, it, it scary movie, violent movie, action movie, like that is not going to be those, that taxonomy is not going to be the final arbiter of what I let you see. It's who are you and what can you handle? Um, he was, I was a martial artist at a young age and my dad did not understand that at all, but he understood this shit out of samurai movies. So like we watched the Tashiro Mifune uh, samurai trilogy, samurai one, two, uh, and three, yeah. uh, when I was like 11, um, and then my dad was super into Hitchcock. And I remember this was like right when we're starting to watch movies together. And I always loved the poster for Vertigo. And nice. I'm like, that Which looks cool. inspired the logo for our show. It totally did. Um, but like, that you I saw that. A picture <laughs> of the mask to wear on your face. <laughs> or just DM me and I'll, I'll send you all the photos of Aaron that I have. Um, but no, I and I said like, can I watch that? And he's like, no, you're too young. And I'm like, what wow. like what rating is it he's like it's pg i'm like why can't i watch this he's like when you get to be like 15 you can watch it so i get to be 15 we finally watch that and i said and i'm like it was heavy and i'm like i understand like there's a maturity thing here but like why did you why did you want me to wait this long and he's like you were 11 he's like you hadn't been in a relationship you hadn't had your heart broken you hadn't been obsessed with uh you haven't been obsessed with a woman yet and you couldn't relate to this guy. Um, it's okay, baby girl. Uh, it, you couldn't relate to this guy uh, until you had that experience. And so, yeah. But it, it reminded me of you and your writing, like when I when when I think about that. That well, is super interesting. Is, it, I, 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 I'm sorry, I'm interrupting, but that's no, no. I need to look this up because I didn't know that existed. And that right that that this idea, and this is something a lot of my single childless friends have all like been like so when are you going to start showing them the you know nightmare on elm street when are you gonna start showing her this yeah. or that and i'm like she's two <laughs> you know yeah. and, and i don't want yes i would love to show my daughter what i love and share that experience with her but i have no idea if that's something she would even like and i don't want to like force it's, it that 100 the key to it is talking to your child both before and after things and really gauging how things sink in, like what experience are they having? They'll start to ask you for stuff. They'll start to tell you what they're interested in. You'll know if your kid is silly and like silly movies, you'll know if your kid's and they may not like anything and that's completely fine. Toshi, I think twigged movies very early. Alan didn't. Alan took much longer before he decided if he even wanted to watch movies. Like it was not an immediate thing for him. And with both of them, it has been, there have been missteps. Um, I have two books that are available, uh, Aaron. One is called You're Watching It Wrong, which is just about Star Wars and just about how you show the first six Star Wars movies to your kids. And my theory is you don't show them in the order they were released and you don't show them chronologically. You show them in a broken order because the movies only really work as a story if you show them a certain way. I say you show them episode four, episode five, and then episode five ends with Luke, I am your father. And you go, what? That's crazy. And then you show episode one, two, and three as a flashback. Mm. 
And then at the end of episode three, they have the big duel. You know everything. All the cards are on the table and you go to Return of the Jedi and you drop all the, the ending of the story finally. It works so differently. And that's how I showed them to my kids when I exposed them for the first time. And I wrote a book about their responses to the movies as we went through and what the experience was like for them. They had no spoilers. They didn't know anything. So all the surprises got to be surprises. If you do it that way, you don't know if Luke's his father. You don't know if Darth Vader's his father. It's not an automatic assumption. Then you go back and you learn the whole story of Anakin Skywalker and what happened. And you you get to see the tragedy of the fall so that the redemption means something. If you do, if you watch them in the order they were released, I don't think they work very well. If you watch them chronologically from one through six, I don't think they work very well. So showing them to my kids kind of changed my mind about how they worked overall. And I, I really love that experience. I wanted to share that. The other book is just about horror films. And I and with Toshi, I made some mistakes, man. I definitely did it wrong a few times. He was very young and was asking about scary movies. And I, I knew he wasn't going to really like to be scared. And I thought the perfect gateway drug movie was Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Yes. Because it's silly. That's but amazing. there's monsters in it. Yeah. It's silly. The problem is kids empathy emp you have to remember kids are driven so largely by empathy when they're watching movies they don't watch movies as a detached thing they feel movies they they get very into them and they latch onto characters and identify and costello is a big baby he's a big kid so when they're watching the movie they very much are costello yeah and there's several scenes in that film where the wolfman is behind costello threatening him Scared the shit out of Toshi when I showed it to him. It was not playing as a comedy at all. And I had to turn it off. And he was like, I'll come back and watch that when I'm seven. And I'm like, okay, perfect. <laughs> um, he was he was like, I will tell you when. And I did it again a few years later with Twilight Zone, the movie. Okay. That movie scared the gonna, shit out of me when I, I was thought, a kid. I thought it was the right balance. I thought he yeah. was in the right place. And the Albert Brooks, Dan Aykroyd segment, we didn't make yes. it past that. The moment out, yeah, the moment Dan turns around, Toshi was, he stood up and tears shot sideways out of his eyes. Yeah. That, and that, he was that, done. That moment in the car, want to see something really scary, that haunted me for years. Yeah. And I, I so we made mistakes and he finally told me when he was ready. Yeah. And, and he told me I'm, I want, and he was dealing with some real life fears at the time. And he was reaching that age where he was he was aware that he was nervous and scared about a lot of things and that that was something he didn't like. And so we started watching horror films. I showed him Halloween that night. And he confronted the idea of I'm going to be scared in this movie and made it all the way to the end of Halloween and felt like he had done something, like he had really accomplished a goal. And he didn't close his eyes and he watched the whole thing and he, he survived. And to him, horror films then became all right, well, then I'm going to try this one. Is that too scary for me? And then it became like a series of tests. Yeah. And so like Friday the 13th was a test where I I was like, I warned him ahead of time. Your big problem is you don't like jump scares. Okay. Uh, you need to confront that if you're going to watch horror films because otherwise you'll never enjoy them. And you don't have to. It's possible to just tap out and say, I don't like horror films. But if you want to watch them, you got to get over the, the jump scare thing being the end of the world. And so we watched Friday the 13th and I remember getting to the end of the movie and telling him, 
you did it. You survived Friday the 13th. Well, she's still in the boat. I'm like, you did it. You survived. It's over, buddy. And he's like, I did. Oh, I'm no. Fine. And boom, Jason popped oh, up. God. And he went rigid again. He went, How dare just, you? And I remember he pointed at me and yelled, I hate you, old man, and left the room. Oh, and wow. Just, and, and then came oh, back. I hate you, old man. And then came back and was like, that was awesome. But oh, my God. <laughs> so... He got to the point now where it, like it's an appetite, but you got to listen to them and they'll drive you. Yeah, they'll tell yeah. you what they're ready for. And with with him now, birthdays are milestones. So each birthday, we will I'll do a group of movies where only he can come over. His his little brother can't come, and he can watch movies that he's ready for that his little brother's not. How old is he? He's fifteen now. Oh okay. my god. So, so 13, 14, 15 have been big years where we yeah, have made yeah. significant jumps forward. And he's really hungry now. So some of the birthday movies over the last few years, we'll do a theme where we talk about an idea. Um, this last year, I wanted to talk to him about the way men in society get programmed and the way that programming yeah. can go haywire and break us and the way we respond to it. And so this year we watched Train Spotting. Mm -hmm. um, and this year we watched A Clockwork Orange. Yeah. And this year we watched Fight Club. Oh, interesting. Good choices. And all three of those movies, we had big conversations about where we we uh, really, I really wanted to get to the idea of you're going to, especially now with YouTube and with the indoctrination and the way shit happens online and the way good ideas front for horrible intentions. And it's so easy for kids to get radicalized accidentally. So I really wanted to talk about programming and about, and all three of those movies he chewed on for weeks afterwards and the conversations we had about them and about what they meant and about his reactions to them about and about what upset him in them. And I know so much now about who he's going to be. And I feel like those films allowed us to have conversations that I would never have been able to figure out a way to get to otherwise. And I think that's what film can really do, especially as they get older and they start to wrestle with bigger ideas. You can, you can hear, hear who they are you can hear what they're thinking if you just talk to them about this stuff yeah <laughs> that's a lot that's that's uh, that's a lot of, i mean you you have an excellent point that this should be taught to kids excellent point you know I, literacy yeah i i i've been thinking about this just, my daughter's too and she's already obsessed with my phone and obsessed with smart yep. watches and she wants to look at videos and she wants to watch mickey mouse clubhouse which is great. We limit the amount that she could be in front yeah. of these things, but there's going to be a moment, I'm sure not so far in the distant future, where we're going to have to confront the evils of social media and, yeah. and what content is allowed and what isn't. And this is coming from me, a guy that at one point in my life went from acting in front of the camera to working at fucking MySpace where my job was content moderation. Oh God! And oh, my I'm job so was sorry. policy enforcement. Oh, it gets worse. I had to report child porn to the FBI on a nightly basis, and I was in charge of mon monitoring the law enforcement hotline that was an international hotline. I worked graveyard shift, so from 10 p.m. until 4 a.m. in the morning, that phone rang. I would have to answer it, and it would be everything from you know, a police officer wanting a subpoena because this profile posted child pornography to a suicide threat to this kid is missing and we want 
their IP address to track where they're logging into their profile from. And this, I worked there 15 years ago and that shit was scary to me then when we were yeah. telling parents to install key yeah. loggers on their computer if yeah. they yeah. wanted to understand what their kids were doing. Now it's a completely different world. Yeah. It's it's funny you mentioned that because like and it, well both of you mentioned because you know my sons have iPods they were given they were gifted uh, iPod touches um, they can't call with them but little iPod touches that are essentially iPhones without the phone um, so that they could you know play little games on uh, Roblox being one of them obviously um, but obviously YouTube and so my wife and I had big conversations about this about a limiting time b the rabbit hole not only of content creation but the rabbit hole of downloads and purchases the way that and i've worked at tech companies i've worked at mobile first tech companies that you know like the ads the the way that it just spirals you to well it's free well it's free let's just keep doing it and it's it's especially for a child who can't discern um drew a lot of what drew talks about with film i've had to adapt with the tech and so every time he wants to watch like a new youtube channel He's got to tell me about it. I got to go in there and we got to sit and watch together. And yeah. I don't judge. I don't like, why are you watching? Like I try, I mean, I try not. There have been times where I've, I've had visceral reactions to some things, nothing, nothing that I think anybody would consider bad, but on principle, some of the values, those things are espousing of materialism and, and some of this other nonsense, YouTube culture, um, I have to, we have to have conversations about why he finds it appealing. He has yeah. to explain it to me in his own words, what he's getting out of this. And if he said, if it's like, you know, steamrollers going over and breaking toys, uh, he has to tell me why, if it's uh, a gamer that he's watching, who's playing Minecraft and doing Minecraft acts, that's fine. But you got to tell me why you got to think about this stuff yeah. because I'm not going to be there every time he encounters it. But if I can develop the habit in him and his brother, to just think about why it is they like it. And it's to the point now, thankfully, where he'll sometimes stumble and he'll come bring in. He's like, uh, dad, I'm just letting you know, I saw this, but I'm, I'm moving past it. And I'm like, thank fucking God, man. Like, I mean, like, and, 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 and it's not even like the violent stuff. It's just shit that makes me uncomfortable seeing someone like a nine-year-old encounter. At, right. At this stage. I, th I think there's also another aspect to this, that if you introduce, not really film criticism, but just film appreciation and how to how to consume it and, and and education around it. I think it exercises and develops a more analytical way of thinking where you can filter out the bullshit, you know, in the world or at least be able to logically think about certain things that may be happening in the world right now and filter, okay, is that fake news or is the person saying it's fake news full of BS, you know, stuff like yeah. that? Well, and I, you can introduce things like I, I think it's very important um, right now, especially the idea of satire is something that um, it's important to teach your kids that not everything needs to be taken at face value. Not everything needs to be read on the surface. And I'm amazed at how literal minded mm. much of our country seems to be right now. Mm -hmm. And much of our culture seems to be where they can't digest anything past a certain surface level. It's what it is. And that's it. And I, I it's, it's terrifying to me because certainly that's not the way I digest media. And I don't think that's the way most media is made. But I think that things like satire, 
it's lost on a lot of people now. Yeah. You can't be subtle. You cannot make points that are, that run counter to the actual point you're making to make it. It's, and that's something that we've lost. We've lost some cultural literacy. We've lost this ability to digest and parse things. And, you know, some of that is as kids are soaked only in YouTube or as they're soaked in only kids product, I think you're doing them a disservice. I think a lot of parents take their cues from the media companies. Media companies tell you what to show your children. Well, you show them this because it's on the kids channel. So you just show them this stuff or you, once they get to this age, then automatically they're okay for all of this stuff. And I don't agree necessarily with them on any of that. I think your children are more limber than you think they are in terms of media. I think you can show them stuff at a young age that dares them, dares their appetites. I showed my kids silent films and silent comedy when they were little. You'd be surprised how easily they click to it. Oh, Black yeah. and white's not an issue to a little kid unless you tell them it's an issue. Silent movies aren't an issue to a kid unless you tell them it's an issue. If you just add that into the media rotation, you'll be amazed how much it pays off down the road in terms of them being willing to try almost anything. It's like kids who ate vegetables versus kids who didn't later on in life, just having a willingness to try things. And I think your media diet's the same way. If you're adventurous in some of the stuff you show your kids, if you don't necessarily just buy into blues clues and nothing else, then I think your kids down the road will be more adventurous. And I think they'll be able to digest things more properly. Yes. And I a hundred percent agree with that. And I think that there is a definite connection and correlation between like you know, Buster Keaton classics and the Looney Tunes. Like there is, yeah, there's definitely a similarity there and an aesthetic there that, that, I mean, I watched stuff like that when I was a kid, but I was also raised by old people. You know, I saw arsenic and old lace when I was like six years old as well. Yeah. Uh, but, but, but regardless of that, I, you're a hundred percent correct. I think our attention spans I don't think I know our attention spans have dwindled and I, I, you know, whether it's the 24 hour news cycle or social media, I, I saw that movie, the social dilemma on Netflix a few months ago, which had me almost throw my phone into the trash. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it that, that opened my eyes to certain social media behaviors. I was involving myself in and how that influenced, not just um, how I was around my wife and daughter, but how my brain was working and yeah. it took that to make me step back and think, what did I do before this? Like, yeah. you know, yeah, I'm having a real hard time getting my kids to read recreationally. Mm. Yeah, um, me too. Right and I now. think the problem was that I read to them for most yeah. of their childhood, like that. And that was fine. They love that. That was great. But they didn't develop the habit of taking a book and then just wandering away and reading because they always had screens They've had games for a long time. Um, and I do think that is the losing battle in my house, which frustrates me. And, you know, it sounds like I've won all the fights. My kids are great and they've digested all the My kids have a great relationship with movies and television. Yeah. I get wildly frustrated about their relationship with books. And, yeah. I, and I've tried everything. I try to, I've stocked their bookshelves in their room now with so many things that tie directly into their interests and I don't ever mention it. It's just, those are the bookshelves in your room. Please browse. I hope they will get interested yeah. at some point, but you can't force it. And it's, I'm learning what some people feel like with 
when they read me talking about how easy it's been with movies, I know now how frustrated they can be when I deal with a book thing because, yeah. man, I wish they had a, a better attention span for reading. I think it's important. It's funny because, you know, I, I, I'm reminded of something that Ta-Nehisi Coates said because um, this is w- the, probably the, the, you know, like when I was a kid, I uh, books were available and abundant. World According to Garp was on the bookshelf and along with a lot, you know, my dad had uh, uh, Arthur Conan Doyle collected, Shakespeare collected. We had all, my dad, voracious reader. Um, and for me, I just never picked my interest until I found comic books. I found comic books because I was a huge G.I. Joe toy fan and G.I. Joe number 91 written by Larry Hama, Snake Eyes' Face Revealed, 7-Eleven in Sunland, California, done, got it. I'm like, well, I need to know what happens next. That led to the other. I started playing D&D, got really big into buying the D&D books. And ta Coates said when he was playing D&D, his dad was just happy to see him reading and didn't yeah. push back on that and didn't say, well, you got to read real books. It's like, no, read, read all the D&D books, read every D&D book you can find. And hopefully oh, yeah. that will pivot off. And for me, that was the same thing. I read a lot of comics and a lot of role-playing games. And then at about 15, I was like, oh, here are actual books. And I, um, Generation X by Douglas Coupland. And that was like the yeah. thing that like got me into reading and then just like reading and then I couldn't stop. So with them, I keep with my sons, um, they have all the regular books in there, but they're really into the bone comic book by Jeff Smith. And oh, that is the fun. one. Great. Yeah. That is the one book that they will always go back to. And every time I buy them a new collection of the trade, they are on it. That and captain underpants and Dogman and all those like YA comic books. Those are the big, like what Raina Telmagyre is doing in young adult comic book literature right now is so important for reading. Um, so right now, if, if I could just get them onto comics, that's, I, I will just be happy about that. And then, yeah. and then if there's one other piece of media I can shout out as like phenomenally good for parents, um, it just wrapped up, but Rebecca Sugar's uh, Steven Universe on Cartoon Universe mm. or Cartoon Network was- I've heard a lot of good things. It's, um, yeah. there are some conversations that came out of that one because she did something- amazing uh in that it is a show for kids but it grapples things head on uh in in terms of like not only the queer representation but like concepts like gaslighting and concepts like um you know uh codependency and uh and then they do a thing where they time jump it and then steven as a young man now has to like i saved the world and now every little problem i have is giving me a panic attack because everything feels like i'm gonna die and they Mm -hmm jump into this notion of um of just getting therapy and like it's okay to not be okay which has spawned all sorts of conversations um wow. which i wish a lot of the pieces of media did um well yeah. that that's a case where they brought that piece of media to me and we're now at an age where we're starting to get that happening where the yeah. boys find things that they watch and that they love that they come yeah. to me and they're like we think this is really good. We want you to watch it because we want to know if it's really good. And there have been several that's things. Gotta be pretty, that that's got to be a pretty cool experience, though, to to be introduced to something new from your kids and have them come to you for your insight. Yeah, well, and I think I think it's it's definitely a moment. You know, I, I loved taking stuff to my parents that I found, especially like a big part of my childhood was trying to find things my dad would love mm-hmm. um, because he introduced me. Like my dad was very much a... Typical dad in terms of the movie taste. So he introduced me to like Eastwood Westerns and Steve McQueen movies and Bruce Lee and um, 
like that was that was his James Bond was the big thing that we bonded over first. I remember at seven being taken to Spy Who Loved Me in the theater mm. uh, on opening weekend. And he was like, all right, it's time. I've waited as long as I can <laughs> wait. There's a James Bond movie coming yeah. out. You're going. The first and, James Bond movie I saw in theaters was Never Say Never Again. Nice. And I was like, that was, um, I was, I was little man, but there was a scene <laughs> where there was, I, I, I have, I have to revisit that movie because I haven't seen it in forever, but so, there's like a, like a weapon in a pen, there's some sort of pen gun or something that happens at some point in that movie. And I was clicking pens, man, for like a whole year. It's <laughs> just hoping that I could, you know, wield that sort of power. But I think our, I think we we definitely imprint on media that our parents share with us that was special to them. There's things that we'll remember our whole lives because of the way they told us. I love this. Singing in the Rain was like that for my mom. Um, there were a couple of things. Musicals for her were the ones that she would show me. Or comedies from a certain era like um, uh, Tony Randall comedies from the 60s. Yeah. Like things, the weirdest things that she was in love with. But when she shared them, it was clear that it was really special to her. So I'd watch it closely trying to figure out, okay, why, why do they love this so much? And with my dad, it was the same thing. Any, anytime he took me to like tough guy movies, it would be like, why, why did they, what was it about Clint Eastwood that my dad loves so much? And, you know, we're in a privileged position where we can hand these things down to our kids or in spe very special moments, pay back these things to our parents. One of the, the two greatest moments with my dad ever, I invited him out here one time and I said, dad, just bring a suit. I'm not telling you why. Just get on a plane, come out here by this date and bring a suit. And he was like, all right. And he did. And the night of the thing, I just told him, put your suit on. And I drove him to Beverly Hills and we went into a reception area and we stood around for a few minutes with some other people. And then the doors opened and Clint Eastwood walked in Oh. and he walked over and I said, dad, this Clint Eastwood, Mr. Eastwood, this man raised me on your movies and I got nothing to ask you, but he does. And I just let them talk for like 10 minutes wow. and gave away my my time that they had set up for me to my dad. Cause I was like, you deserve this. You should have this conversation. And it was amazing to watch him. And I've never seen my dad shaky before. My dad's six, five and look in just this giant former paratrooper. Like he does not get shaken easily by anything. And he was really it was giddy at the idea of, <laughs> And didn't know it was coming, so he walked in the room and just I saw him just kind of melt, like what's happening? Oh my god! And uh, later, a couple of years after that, I got invited to be a judge at a film festival called Action Fest. That was the first year yeah. of this action film festival in North Carolina, and they held the film festival literally across the street from where my parents have retired. So it was like the perfect. I was like, yes, of course I will go judge that, if nothing else, just to be with them. And then they told me that the film festival was put on by Chuck Norris and his brother. <laughs> and as a judge, that meant that I got a special Sunday morning hang with Chuck Norris, to which I invited my father. And once again, got to put him in a room with a dude that meant something to him that didn't mean the same thing to me. But oh my God, to watch him get to geek out with his icon and talk karate with Chuck Norris and karate moves. And man, it felt like I had, if nothing else, my job paid off in that way that he got to do these things that full circle for him that he would have never otherwise done. Yeah. So we, we are in a privileged gig where every yeah. now and then you get a chance to connect somebody to something that means something bigger to them. And I think that is the special thing about what we do. Yeah. I, I had a moment like that with my mom 
my mom introduced me to Star Trek growing up. And uh, I mean, you know, <laughs> yes, Star Wars was the big thing, but Star Trek was our our thing. And, and somehow we got all the time to go to screeners of the Star Trek movies throughout the 80s. I remember going to not screeners, screenings. I remember mm -hmm. going to an advanced screening of um, Search for Spock. And that was amazing for me. You know, I'd never gone to anything like that. She worked at a bank that was in Studio City and she had a lot of famous uh, uh, customers. So we got invited. Like I got to go see them shoot Night Court live and I shook Richard Maul's hand because Bull was my favorite character. And I said, I'm never washing this hand again. And, you know, stuff like that. I, I got to uh, do some really cool things. And when I got the job that I got, I was able to go see the Star Trek, uh, the first J.J. Abrams Star Trek. And I brought my mom to an advanced screening. And it was like, it was so cool seeing the tables turned and her excited about something that she no longer had that access to that I was yeah. able to offer. Well, that, that was the movie that, um, that and Speed Racer were the movies that got Toshi hooked. Like I remember my gateway drug movie was Star Wars in 77. I was seven when it came out. Um, it was Star Trek, the JJ Abrams one. And I took him to a screening of it. Um, and he was four. Yeah, it was four for both of those movies. And uh, for the J.J. Star Trek, he stood up during that opening sequence, mm -hmm. wouldn't sit in his chair, also wouldn't stand close enough that I could touch it. He stood about a foot away from me, just like a meerkat, frozen. <laughs> and for the entire movie, stood and just was riveted. And every time I would try to say something, he'd be like, no, 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 just in it. And at the end of it, couldn't get over what he had just experienced. Like it changed him. And Speed Racer did the same thing. And I think those those experiences were so huge for him. And then those kid, both my kids grew up going to junkets with me just because I would have them on the weekends. And so they spend all weekend with me at junkets. And they've met everybody. So they've had they have weird childhoods where they half remember things or we'll be watching movies now. One of my favorite things now is we'll be watching a movie and I'm like, you've met them. They're like, what? I'm like, yeah, you met them. Uh, I took them to the That's My Boy junket with uh, Adam Sandler and Andy Sandler. And uh, oh, we walked man. in the room, and it was Sandler and Sandberg paired for the interview. So we walk in the room, and the boys had the same routine. We'd walk in, and I tell them, go through to the next room, and you know, be quiet. And they knew the rules. Don't talk while we're taping because tape will hear you, and dad will kill you. So those are the rules. We walk in. Sandler gets up and does oh poo poo and he makes poo poo voices and he does jokes with the boys for a minute and I'm like oh that's pretty funny hey look at that Adam Sandler's playing with all right and then they go through to the other room and I say quiet boys I sit down we start doing the interview and from the other room immediately ah, 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 and I'm like what? okay we're trying to do the interview another question then blah 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 more noise from the other room my kids are making so much noise. I'm like I can't believe this is happening we finally get through the five minute interview. And I get up to go read them the riot act and sitting in the other room is James Kahn who played <laughs> their father in the film and is sitting in the room, not doing interviews, just fucking around because he can. And he was making my kids laugh to see what I would do. And he was encouraging, make more noise. He was like winding them up to see what would happen. And then when I came into the room, obviously irritated James Kahn's like, and 
Um, and it was like, I can't, I can't do anything. You're James how Conn. do you respond to that? We, oh my we, God. Have, we have a James Conn story uh, in common, actually, because my my dad took me to martial arts tournaments when I was really young. And he, um, he you know, he, it was not his thing, not his world at all. Very first karate tournament he ever takes me to, the Gosokuru one at um, Occidental College. Uh, that's significant because Gosokuru is a style that James Conn is a fifth degree black belt in. And sure as shit, as soon as I'm registering, who do we see in his gi with his belt that is just weathered and like he's had forever? Fucking James Khan. And he's just having a conversation. And my dad goes white and just like absolutely like, you know, absolutely just kind of goes white. And then and here he's just another dude. Like it's just some random karate tournament in Glendale. And uh, my dad finally like works up the courage to like talk to him. Seeing my father nerd out over this stuff was um, it gave me an access point to who he was in a way that I had never seen him before seeing him. be. You learn a lot about, yeah, you learn a lot about somebody when you, when you see what actually is really important to them when they have that reaction to something. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's definitely it's it's interesting, and you learn a lot about your parents from the things that they share. Yeah, yeah, you know, it. My, I said my daughters too, and my wife does have a deep fandom for uh, Harry Potter, and she's currently mm-hmm. re-listening to some um, the audiobooks of of each of the series. And there's an actor, a voice actor named Jim Dale, who narrates oh, yeah. the books. My daughter doesn't know who the hell Harry Potter is. Okay but she is obsessed with listening to Jim Dale's voice on my wife's phone. And I feel like that's probably the start of something else, but it's interesting to see how it's, how, how it's shared uh, because, yeah. you know, my wife's into it. Suddenly my daughter's really into it and she gets super fucking pissed if it's not playing on the phone. And I could only, I like, I, I, am, I, I wonder, I wonder, I really do. If, if she's going to go down the trajectory I went down with regards to, you know, the type of media that I grew up on um, or the more Broadway musical Harry Potter, or if it's going to be a combination of the two and then her own thing. I think that's, and I think that's the best case scenario is that that broad spectrum of stuff that you guys expose her to then opens her up to finding the things she loves. I think that's you guys, it's really good that you don't have the same interests. I think, you know, my ex-wife. Thank you. A lot of people would disagree. No, same no, no, with I us, man. Same with I us. I 100% believe that. My ex, my ex-wife didn't really like movies at all. And and I and has a very weird relationship with that. Doesn't watch very many. She, there's like six movies she likes and oh, one oh, TV show. This is actually, and, I'm glad you brought that up. I'm sorry, continue. But I have a question about this. Sure. And so the boys have, when the boys watch media with her, literally the TV show is Friends. My kids know every word from every episode <laughs> of Friends because they've seen them all yeah. 7,000 times. Whether they like it or not, they just by osmosis have absorbed that show. And then there's about seven films that she watches on an endless loop. One is the Indian comedy Bride and Prejudice. And <laughs> if you want to see my kids twitch, you put any song from that movie on and they, they'll flinch like you're throwing things at them like they've heard it so many times. There's just movies that they can't even look at anymore because they've seen them so many times. So yeah. with her, they don't they don't share media the same way. And I feel like they miss it. Like they will ask her sometimes, would you like to watch this? And they'll try to take things to her to share with them because they've learned how to connect that way. 
And when they don't have that connection, I think it frustrates them sometimes. So mm. it can be difficult, I think, if they get used to it or if they really love it to not have that common ground, even if it's different common ground. Yeah, They don't you know, care that it's the same things I watch. They just want to watch something with her. That was, uh, so when uh, my wife and I first started dating, that was a big thing that I, you know, I had to get past in that I made a lot of references, movie references and how I talked. She said, I love you to me the first time. And I responded back with ditto. And she got super fucking pissed off. And I had to sit her down and make her watch Ghost because she had yeah. never seen Ghost. And I'm like, you know, in retrospect, Patrick Swayze is kind of a dick in that movie no. for that response. But, <laughs> but, but, you know, knowing that she, her, her upbringing was, was shaped by a different type of uh, entertainment than mine. Um, and then getting into this line of work where hours of my time would be spent either at screenings or watching screeners of TV shows and then writing about it. And it would look outwardly like I'm just having a good time watching a movie while I'm not able to spend time with her. That caused some friction. And yeah. we've had to come to an agreement, you know, like there's certain times of the year where I'm gone for days, whether it's the TCAs or film festivals or comic-con or whatever. And um, there were times there where there was tension and I'm curious how, how, or is there even a way to reconcile that aside from just coming to an agreement of, I like the stuff I like and you like the stuff you like. And there are going to be times where we're going to be sharing a, a living room where I'm going to have my headphones on watching one thing. And you're going to be sitting next to me watching a completely different thing. And yeah. while, you know, we're sitting there supposed to be sharing in a viewing experience and we're not, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's hard. I find that I really try to curate for different, um, I use a, uh, I use a media program now called Plex for most of my, oh, yeah. my media. I've, I've burned most of my physical stuff. You can see the shelves I have behind me. I've like 10 or 12,000 movies in the house it, and I put them in like giant books. I've taken them out of sh uh, the sleeves and stuff. Like I ran out of room for them. And so I, about four or five years ago, made the jump to burning everything to digital media and then putting it all on my Plex server so that I can just have access to it and I can find things again. And part of the joy of that for me has been making playlists where I'll make one playlist for when my girlfriend and I are watching things. I'll make one playlist for when the boys are here. I'll make one playlist for my work stuff. I'll make a playlist for whatever, but whatever the reason, I can then go and like when my girlfriend wants to watch something, I'll know that in that playlist, it's all stuff that she'll be generally interested in. And whatever we watch, it'll be good. It'll be a thing we can share. And times where she doesn't want to watch something or times where it's just me in the room, I have a totally different set of stuff I'm watching. And I've, I've really tried to learn her tastes. Like I don't want, to inflict my movie. There's stuff I watched that, man, I don't, nobody else needs to watch some of the stuff <laughs> I watch. Nobody needs to. I watch everything. I'm an omnivore. I'm, I'm constantly watching media. So it's much more meaningful if you can really dig down and find stuff that they'll enjoy and bring it to them and curate stuff for them. Because also then they, there's a sense that you've gone truffle hunting. You're the one that mm. is out gathering all this stuff and you've filtered it out and you're like, I, this one you'll like, this one's for you. And I, I do think there's something special then when you can find the thing that you guys connect on if you don't have the same tastes. One thing that worked for my wife, because Aaron, Aaron and I joke all the time that like our wives are eerily I 
identical. Like it's either both dance teachers and like they, you know, lot, there's a lot of parallels. Is and your wife of, into just watching reruns of the Great British Baking Show? And- I'm into the watching. I'm literally watching it right now. I'm not <laughs> even joking. She, no, she, she, but I she has her shows I, that she watches on replay. Yes. I have come into the living room and the same episode has been on for months and i'm like listen i take the this dude with the teeth can we have a different episode without the, the guy right. with the red neck and the dude with the teeth like- <laughs> right but no but the, but what we do here because i expose my wife to a lot of stuff like just like you did uh, my wife is italian and she had never seen the godfather so like for me and now now the godfather wow. is like our thanksgiving tradition that's like we nice. it's like whenever it's like thing, that was a thing a tradition in my house we watched godfather thanksgiving it's become tradition here um, but with Rachel, what I do is I do the thing called the cold open test, which is because every time I bring something, she's immediately dubious because yeah, same. our first week of dating, I showed her like Babel and like Children of wow. Men when it first oh, came wow. out. Jesus. Not great. Not great stuff. <laughs> oh my God. Um, Might as well just take her down the road while you're at yeah, it. Oh, just, yeah. Just I well, because like I didn't want to fuck around. I'm like, look, if this isn't going to work, I need to know now. Yeah. You need to be ride or die <laughs> for this or like or just like accepting and, and bless her. She was. Uh, but. I always do this thing called the, the cold open challenge. I'm like, just go with me until the end of main titles. If it's a TV show or, or in a movie I learned in film school. Like one thing my film professor taught me was uh, by the time main titles hit in most conventional movies, uh, especially the ones we watched, if you don't know exactly where you're in for by the time main title hits um, or eight minutes in roughly uh, then, you know, that you should know what you're in for as a viewer. So yeah. I do that with her. I'm like, and I'm very strategic and nothing brings me more joy in this universe then seeing that main title side eyeing her and her just saying, okay, we can keep watching. Yeah. Like, and just, and orphan black was that way, you know, yeah, like yeah. Orphan a, black, a lot of her. Yep. Yeah. Yep. That just happened so. the other night with the queen's gambit. Yeah. You know? Oh, we just finished. Ooh, we just yeah. finished it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I'm we're only on episode two, but, Oh, but so good. I, you know what? We're, we're going to be wrapping this up soon. Yeah. Um, and I, I guess I just want to ask one final question to you, Drew. Sure. Have you found it a challenge at all to maintain your hunger for movies and your fandom um, through parenthood and just through the way the industry has changed since you started? Um, I think the first one is what keeps the second one from kicking my ass too hard. Um, Mm. Sharing things with my kids and having these conversations with them about films has been very pure. It's even though I write about it and even though um, a lot of it has become something that's been part of my work, um, the experience itself is very pure and uh, it is an ongoing pleasure. Um, You know, I, I think about it every time they're coming over. Uh, I, I'm, I am divorced. So my kids spend half the time with their mom. Um, We have them here, uh, thankfully more now that they're doing remote learning. Um, the digital school thing is, has been really helpful because I can have them here during the week all week now. Uh, I don't live close enough normally for that to happen. Um, and so we've had a lot more time with them and we will typically, I, I will program a movie a night and then something else to go with that movie. And, uh, it's, it really is enormously, um, gratifying and fun to watch these things and movies that I haven't seen in 25 years that I'm watching again with them are brand new to me and feel brand new. And I'm remembering the experiences I had with them. I just showed the elephant man a couple mm. of weeks ago and uh, the 15 year old was devastated. Like it ruined mm. him. Um, and the younger one hasn't stopped talking about it since then. Uh, 
he just he can't get out of his head. He's so fascinated by the real story and by the real photos and by the fact that that was real. And yeah. um, And so, yeah, that to me keeps me very connected to it. The business, uh, especially the the entertainment journalism, because I write films and then I write about films and the writing media has been very hard. And I did myself no favors by being a very honest, very, uh, brutal critic at times. I burned a lot of bridges. I, I burned bridges I was standing on. I was an idiot at times. Um, and it has, that kind of colored my dealings with the business. And then I think the the entertainment journalism business is on fire. Yes. I think it's kind of a nightmare right now. And I, I alluded to this earlier, but I think a big part of it is we burn good writers to the ground and we don't let them write. We make them grind. We make them turn out content but we don't let them write. And I think, unfortunately, there's a lot of voices that are never going to get good, that are never going to be able to really become writers because they're so busy turning out content on a daily basis that they have no time to think about and no time to really digest. And it's a shame because I think there's really talented people who get pulled into that. That, to me, ground out a lot of what I loved about movies. I got to the point where when I left HitFix, I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't know if I wanted to do this anymore. And I realized quickly that what I can't do is I can't work in marketing. Mm. And I think anything that comes before the release of a film is marketing, which unfortunately now is everything. Reviews, interviews, conversations, breakdowns, scene by scene, analysis, everything is before the movie comes out. And the moment the movie comes out, the press moves on because something else has to come out next week. And we really don't ever talk about things again. And the truth is, a movie doesn't even begin to be a thing until it's out in the world and people have a chance to see it and live with it and decide what they think about it. We've got it all backwards. And so our business is all marketing. It's very little meat. There's very little conversation about the actual thing because we have to be done with the thing before anybody else even gets to see it. And it's so backwards that I it really poisoned me. And I had to get my head around getting my relationship back with films on the the terms I wanted, which are I'll watch a movie when I want to. I don't write about everything pre-release anymore. A lot of stuff I don't even see pre-release anymore. And I don't care. I don't think my readers care. I honestly don't think it makes a difference. I think if you have something to say about a film, something of merit to say about that film, you will have something to say about that film when you're ready to say it. And it will be better for you percolating as opposed to, I'm going to do this when the studio tells me to, in direct competition with everybody else, to meet an arbitrary embargo time, because that's when they say to publish it. Also, you're forgetting that your editor wants it published before the movie or TV show premieres, because that's when the the height of all the clicks and the traffic. But but, But that's because we built it that way. Yep. We did that. We, we taught the audience that, and we can teach them differently if we want to, but we don't want to, and we're backwards. It's God, our fault. Damn it, Drew. You're still an inspiration. Right? You're an it's inspiration to sense. me when I wanted to really get into this, and now you're an inspiration to how I am feeling <laughs> today. I've been a freelancer for almost four years, and this industry is a fucking sinking ship. But hey, thanks for listening I to our you, show. I think we can claim it back, though. I really do. It's just a matter of push the conversation in the direction we wanted to go that actually leads me to the final little segment here what are you doing now um 
Well, uh, I have a project that I've been working on for several years that is still uh, under wraps, but it is the most gratifying thing I've ever done. And it's because it is a chance to do the thing I'm talking about, which is remove this conversation completely from selling anything for anybody. The best conversations we can have about film come after we've lived with a film for a little while. It's not the moment it's being released. It's not the moment it's being sold. It's not when the home video is hitting. It's when you've lived with it, when you've soaked up a film, when you've seen how pop culture digests a movie, when you've seen how it's influenced cosplayers or not, the way you've seen the way it's landed in cult, the way people have imitated it or not. That's when a movie, that's when a conversation gets interesting to me. I, the next thing I'm doing is about having those conversations. It's about getting back to micro conversations about the things that fascinate us about movies. Like, you know, what, what, why we love certain actors, why we love certain types of films, getting into the real nuts and bolts of the passion that we have for this stuff. That to me is exciting. And I truly think there's an audience for it that is wildly underserved right now and is hungry. Yeah. And you're also, you're still writing, you're still writing uh, film criticism, right? You're like- I am. I, I publish, um, I, I tried several different versions of self-publishing because I, I realized I didn't want to go back to daily news and any website that wanted to hire me. And I had several places, I had decent offers from like Penske Media and stuff that wanted me to come in and do what I did at HitFix for them. It, it never felt right to me to go back into the news thing. And I very quickly said, I just want to write about movies and I want to do it this way. And I, I have these ideas and I couldn't find a place that had the same vision for it that I did. So first I tried publishing a magazine that was uh, part fiction, part film criticism. And that, that was a little too much of a big bite for me. Um, then I, I tried selling reviews directly and that works. I, I can sell 400, 500 copies of a review through my site. And so that's more than I would make freelancing, uh, you know, a review. If I sell each review for $1.99 or for 99 cents and it all goes to me, that's more than I would make if I sold that to a site and asked them to buy my freelance review. Right. And then I don't have to worry about clicks. I don't have to worry about clickbait. I don't have to worry about any of that. It's I could do that directly on my terms. I also did bespoke reviews where I put up a thing and I said, I will Mm. write a review of any movie I haven't reviewed before. Classic films, movies you love, movies you hate, whatever. But it's this much money and it's this much. And I'll do a 10 page, 15 page review of that where I pull that movie apart. And I sold a number of those. What I ultimately realized, though, is it's all I wanted. I wanted a direct back and forth connection to my audience where there's no daily need to drive traffic. If you're coming, you're coming on a regular basis because you want to read what I'm going to say. And the newsletter ended up being the best version of that for me. Substack approached me. They kind of laid out what their platform is. And there's no editorial anything. I don't deal with anybody. Substack is just a publishing platform. And they gave me the tools to set up a newsletter, a paid newsletter. And that really has been um, transformative for me because it gives me a, a base, a support base to work from where... Two or three times a week, I'll put out a newsletter about different topics, and it can either be a single review, or it can be a film nerd 2.0, or it can be whatever I want it to be, and it does not have to be tied to selling anything, and I don't have to worry about any traffic metrics because it just goes to my subscribers, and it it's working. It really has become a, a living thing where I finally have a place where I feel like this is a home, and 
it works directly with an audience and I don't have any of the stuff I hate about the entertainment business in the middle. I can write what I want to write on the schedule I want to write it. And publicists have been a little hard to deal with. And I kind of realized after about after doing it for about a month, wait a minute, I'm still in that mentality of I need yeah, them. Right. And I and I kept acting like, oh, I need to go to your screenings. Oh, I need this, but I don't because I'm not doing that anymore. And I don't really care about selling your product. So the moment I did that, they suddenly got more interested again. And it's it's very much a case of, yeah, I don't want you. I don't need you. And now it drives you a little crazy, doesn't it? <laughs> um, oh, well, there we are. This episode of Dadward Spiral brought to you by Substack. <laughs> um, Drew, I'm probably going to be picking your brain about that uh, at a later date offline yeah. or not recording this because I I want I, I want a place to to offer such content and I'm not really sure the avenue to take. And I actually heard of Substack and I had no idea what the heck it was. But that's yeah, another conversation to be great. had. We are going to be wrapping up this this conversation. Great. Uh, Drew, uh, can you tell people where to find you? Drew McWeeny. Not physically. Dot com um, is the uh, newsletter, or you can just look formerly dangerous with Drew McWeeny. Um, and uh, I named it that because for years I, at Ain't It Cool, I was considered the most dangerous man on the internet. And uh, I have filmmakers who are still mad at me because of things I've written. And uh, uh, I realized that part of the, Part of what I did in both of those news things was I broke stories that people didn't want broken. And I, I got to the point where every relationship I had in town was hinged on this fear that I would reveal something they didn't want revealed. And uh, that is not at all. And entertainment news is driven on it's only worthwhile for a brief window yep. of time. Yeah, It's yep. only worth something for a split second. And then it's gone forever. That's garbage. That's it's no good. That's why I don't really love entertainment news. It's not news. It is only a currency for a moment. Casting mm. doesn't mean anything to you. Not really. Not until you've seen the film. You don't know if a film's well cast or not until you've seen the movie. But I could we tell you how many months like it's important. Exclusive clips I have been sent through email from publicists <laughs> for episodes of TV shows no one has heard of. Yeah. Well, and so people. So yeah, that's that's you can find me there, and um, and yeah, that's uh, that is why. That's you. You look. We've talked to you for about an hour and twenty minutes, and you don't at all seem dangerous to me. But I don't know if I have a great gauge of character. Persons. <laughs> Jesus. I I can't even speak anymore. <laughs> um, Drew McQueenie. Thank you so much for joining us on, on this episode. Me, uh, you seem like you're in much better spirits than the last time I saw you Definitely. at Midsummer. Um, but I mean, that was Midsummer, so <laughs> that was yeah. that was a heavy film. Um, Eddie, thank yeah. you for uh, for for keeping me in line. I haven't said this, but you oh. you, you keep me on track, especially last week. Jesus Christ! Um, <laughs> this is the end of episode five of the dad word spiral. I would like to thank everyone for coming along once again on another trip with us. My name once again is Aaron Pruner. I am Aaron flux on uh, Twitter. I'm Aaron W Pruner on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, dad word spiral is on Twitter and Facebook and uh, shout out to dragon wagon radio, where every episode of this show is. We're also on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, uh, other 
podcast platforms I can't think of off the top of my head. Those are the only um, ones I know of. <laughs> Eddie, once again, where can yeah. people find you? Uh, Twitter.com's at Kirby.Matrix. Uh, and then over at Twitch at twitch.tv slash zero dork 30. Uh, and yeah, those are the only two places I think you can find me. Maybe my MySpace page is still kicking around somewhere. God, we're talking about MySpace way too much in this episode. Uh, <laughs> uh, I would like to thank uh, everyone in the world. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, look, I think so many people already in this episode. Look, I'm tired. It's been a week, man. Been a I week. was sick two days ago. I thought I had the vid. That's how Kevin Hart is referencing it. So that's the what vid. I'm going to do from now on. Thank you so much. Hugs and kisses to you all. I hope everyone listening has a fantastic uh, socially distanced Thanksgiving. I don't even know if that's even possible. Um, And, you know, just uh, it's chaos out there. Be kind. There you go. Hey, everyone. Jake Lloyd here, along with Paul Bianchi and Alexandra Hoy. Hey, we all host different shows on Dragon Wagon Radio. That's true. But we're not here to talk about any of those. Not at all. We are here to talk about Dungeons and Dragon Wagon. In which us podcasters from Dragon Wagon Radio venture into a mythical land for a D&D inspired role playing game. Alexandra and I are joined by Matt Hinksman and a very special guest of Quest for each chapter of an epic saga in which we must take on the roles of half-orcs, dark elves, and more as we fight our way through a fantastical land of peril, drama, and often hilarity. All of which is controlled by me, the Dungeon Master, and the player's chance rolls of the die. And our show is for everyone. Even if you don't play role-playing games, you'll love D&DW. That's right. Our game sessions are highly edited, easy to follow, sound designed from top to bottom, and completely immersive. Yeah, our episodes sound more like a well-produced radio drama than an RPG show. So what are you waiting for? Join the adventure on Dungeons & Dragon Wagon at dndwpod.com or wherever you find great podcasts. It's Dragon Wagon.